Welcome back. I'm Peter St. Ange. This is a weekly roundup of my daily videos on the economy and freedom, where I try to cut through the BS and the smoke and mirrors and lay out exactly what the clowns are trying to do to you and what is coming next. It turns out almost all of the $7.5 trillion COVID spending orgy went to fully fund the institutional left who is currently trying to enslave us. My Heritage colleagues Richard Stern and David Ditch released a new report that found almost none of the $7.5 trillion pumped out allegedly for COVID actually went to health. Instead, roughly 90% went to handouts and crony payments, much of that siphoned to the institutional left that has become the Democrats' power base, meaning your local rioters, hand gluers, and that army of fact-checking censors are now fully funded, courtesy of your tax dollars. First, the numbers. Between 2020 and 2022, new spending authorizations from Washington totaled $7.5 trillion. It's about $57,400 per American household. So, a second mortgage. Shockingly, almost none of it actually went to health. Just $700 billion, or less than 10% of that, was even spent on public health, setting aside whether or not it was useful or not. Instead, as Stern and Ditch write, quote, the spending spree focused on welfare expansions, cash handouts, and opportunistic subsidies for a variety of special interests. So who are those special interests? Well, trillions went to green projects. Biden's famous Build Back Better cynically rebranded the Inflation Reduction Act. More went to the left's universe of government-funded nonprofits for everything from LGBT and diversity to, of course, sustainability. On top of bailouts for Hollywood, public transportation, blue city budget holes, the post office, a reliable Democrat base, even bailouts for union pensions, which were running a $757 billion debt. Then, of course, the military-industrial complex, which is what Republicans got in return, who continues to loot the Treasury to the tune of $2 trillion per year on national defense. That's $1,250 per month per household to fund every proxy war they can find while giving free security to any dictator who can cash a check it's good for Lockheed. It is good for America. All those crony trillions, of course, led to the skyrocketing inflation. Seven and a half trillion comes to roughly half the entire supply of dollars in existence pre-COVID. So about one in three dollars had fresh ink on them, courtesy of a very obliging Federal Reserve who bought up all the treasuries they couldn't flog in the private market, effectively printing all that money. So what is next? What's next is the fleecings will continue until morale ends because it's worked spectacularly for Washington's army of activists and lobbyists. The Fed has become an in-house money printer for a Congress administration that exploits every crisis to absorb yet more of the productive economy and hand slabs of it to their cronies. So the deficit and print treadmill will continue to drive inflation and, of course, debt, which is now on track to hit by Congress's own numbers $50 trillion in just seven years, with no end in sight as long-term deficits settle towards $2 trillion per year forever. Alas, as Herbert Stein put it, whatever can't go on forever will stop. There's little hope of them pulling back on their own. Washington is living their best life right now. So either voters force them or, more likely, Washington drives us straight off the cliff and then, as always, complains how nobody saw it coming. 
A few days ago, the Wall Street Journal published an article worrying about four storms that could crash the American economy. Evoking those famous perfect storms they used to dodge the 2008 financial crisis. The journal listed them out. The auto worker strike, a long government shutdown, the resumption of student loan payments, and soaring gas prices. They noted that each of these on its own would not crash the $23 trillion American economy, but together they could tip us over the edge given the economy is already, quote, cooling from higher interest rates. As the journal put it, the U.S. economy now faces a, quote, convergence of hazards that threaten to create more turbulence. I'm guessing the journal's editorial policy is to use words like hazards and turbulence to avoid that dreaded nine-letter word, recession, or the mother of ten-letter words, depression. The bigger picture is the lengths to which the establishment will go to media-splain the essential features of the central banking business cycle. Inflation, then recession. You see, it's not the Fed printing up trillions in inflation and then breaking the economy to soak it up. No, it's all an endless series of perfect storms. Each a crazy quilt of headlines that you pour into a big pot, you mix in a few dozen articles about turbulence, and voila, it was all just a stretch of bad luck. Bad luck that, thankfully, the geniuses in Washington are working hard to fix. Top men, I tell you, top men. This has been the game for a long time, of course, really since the beginning of the central banking business cycle. In the 1970s, for example, when inflation started hitting double digits, our lapdog media was full of stories how inflation wasn't money printing, it was really overpopulation or Earth's limited resources. We were running out of everything, you see. Then it was OPEC. Never mind that inflation was already 8%. When the Saudis launched their embargo, we have seen this in the past few years in rare form. When inflation first took off under Biden, outlets like the Journal pumped out the perfect storm stories, how Americans were buying too many Pelotons for the boat stuck in the Suez. It was the Amazon inflation for a minute. Then it was greedy grocery stores and it was global warming, as always. And finally, it was Mr. Putin stopping the Ukraine wheat going to Egypt. All just a series of perfect storms over and over. You can almost see them pouring through headlines, looking for something, anything, plain lady, aliens, anything's game, when there is a central bank with a butt that needs covering. So what is next? What's next is more creative headlines to distract from the Fed's surgical deconstruction of the American economy. More inflation, more recession, all with an exotic variety of excuses. So yes, unions, shutdowns, student loans, and oil could all send us into recession because the Fed put us on a cliff's edge, which is what the Fed is paid to do. A word from our sponsors. If you follow Bitcoin, you probably know that the halving is just six months away, meaning we're about to get a big drop in the supply of new Bitcoin. We've seen that this can send Bitcoin's price up, so selling Bitcoin now to cover expenses could end up costing you. Credit card rates recently hit 24%, but borrowing against your Bitcoin with Unchained can save you a lot. You hold your keys and you can verify that your Bitcoin is secure anytime. Don't be forced to sell the bottom and miss out. For more info, go to Unchained.com and use promo code PETER to get $50 off concierge onboarding. 
As economic statistics fall with a sickening thud all around the world, Earth's central bank mafia is beginning to wonder if maybe they screwed up. Earlier this week, the Wall Street Journal published a world tour of the shelled-out remains of statistical series in the wake of a coordinated global assault on interest rates, an assault that apparently has not worked as core inflation, the kind that matters to central banks, has now been stuck for years and is still, even by official numbers, over 5%. In recent videos, I've covered how both China and Europe are falling over, with half of China's economy now in contraction, and even mighty Germany losing its manufacturing base. But it is looking like the problem is global, which should not be surprising since the COVID lockdowns were also global. They played out the same in most countries, which is spend all the trillions it takes to bribe the sheep into shutting down and then crash the productive economy to soak up the resulting inflation, with, as the journal put it, a coordinated rate rise campaign unprecedented in its scale and its scope. Starting with Europe, fresh data says the entire economy has now contracted in the three months through September, one more quarter, and that is a formal recession. The latest surveys of European purchasing managers point to yet more decline, with new orders falling at the fastest pace since the lockdowns. Hamburg Commercial Bank now estimates Europe is looking at an annualized decline in GDP of 1.6%, which is just shy of the first quarter of the 2008 financial crisis. The survey noted ominously that poor performance in manufacturing is now spreading to services in Europe. Now, those are three times bigger than manufacturing. In fact, they make up two-thirds of the entire European economy. So that is the big enchilada. Next up is Old Blighty, with British purchasing managers similarly pessimistic, and JP Morgan now estimating stagnation for the past three months and the next three months, which would punch Britain's golden recession ticket. And finally, America, where core inflation has been stuck for going on three years now, and it now faces brand new perfect storms, from energy and student loans to an El Nino drought to unions gone wild. America's new orders are now falling for goods and services, in other words, for everything, while business confidence just hit a fresh nine-month low. So what's next? What's next is we're not even in the third inning. Eurozone rates only cleared zero a year ago, and they haven't even hit the traditional restrictive level yet. The Fed is not much better, having only hit restrictive rates a few months ago. So going by the traditional 12 to 18 month lag between rate hikes and economic devastation, it is way too early to be seeing recession signs already, meaning that we are most likely looking at years of pain, perhaps comparable to the 2008 financial crisis, that will get much worse as the months tick by. By mid to late 2024, we will know exactly what the Fed and the rest of the central banker cartel have dumped on our living room carpets, at which point millions of people will be wondering what the heck hit them. Baby boomers are becoming homeless at rates not seen since the Great Depression. But it's still not a recession until the government-paid statisticians say it is. The Department of Housing and Urban Development, HUD, put out fresh statistics recently how older Americans are becoming homeless at levels last seen when worldwide depression was but a glint in FDR's eye. As the AP summed it, boomers are, quote, coming to terms 
with the hard reality that working for your entire adult life is no longer enough to guarantee you'll have a roof over your head in your later years. In raw numbers, the percent of elderly homeless has gone from 11% in the early 90s to 37% by 2003, and it's now roughly half of the newly homeless, and it's rising. What's driving the exodus to America's underpasses is one of those famous perfect storms our ruling clowns are so good at. First, a series of recessions, including yet another one on the horizon, thanks to the Fed. So we had 1990s, uh, early 90s, then we had the early 2000s, we had 2008, we had COVID, and now we've got another one on the horizon. Pair that with high housing costs, again, courtesy of your neighborhood Federal Reserve. The recessions wipe out life savings, and the high house prices caused by low rates give you $400,000 starter homes. Meanwhile, with millions out of the labor force and living on government benefits, even assisted living centers cannot find staff. So they are hiking their prices, and many are even shutting down. The journal says the median cost of a room in a private nursing home in Florida is currently $115,000 per year which is pretty funny if you're living in your car. The federal government tossed a fresh boulder with the COVID-era rent moratoria that bankrupted landlords for political clickbait, handing billions to deadbeat renters. In response, as you would expect, landlords became a lot stricter. Because for them, it's either get strict or get out of the renting business and cut your losses. Landlords in popular cities are now requiring three times income to rent, which essentially shuts out pretty much the entire working class. Combine this gauntlet with ridiculous medical costs and broken families, and any trauma, such as the death of a spouse, a medical emergency, can send the elderly over the edge for good. Many might start by couch surfing, then the car, then when that breaks down, it is the overpass. So what's next? Like so many of the dire statistics oozing from our ruling bureaucrats, this one too tells a tale of misery before the recession even hits in full. Expect another jump in the already nearly million Americans who are homeless, another exodus to the streets. Well, for Americans, the migrants will be fine. Finally, and this is a scary thought, expect more government solutions that, like the rent moratoria or the Fed's obliging rate hikes, conspire to send yet more millions to America's already full overpasses. This podcast is supported by our sponsor, MoneyMetals.com, the most trusted bullion dealer and depository in the United States. MoneyMetals is known for its competitive pricing, excellent customer service, and fast delivery of physical gold and silver, as well as their educational content and strong advocacy for sound money policies at the state and federal levels. They've set the industry standard for selling, buying, and storing precious metals. If you're looking to help protect yourself financially against inflation and market turmoil, I hope you'll give them a try. Go to moneymetals.com to learn more and use coupon code PETER to get a $10 discount on your first purchase of gold or silver. Recently, the CEO of a major Dutch bank gave an interview promoting what one commentator called a coming neo-feudalism, built on government-mandated digital identity and a China-style social credit score, starting, of course, with mandatory carbon allowances. The digital identity captures everything the government wants to know about you which is a large and growing universe on the road to China, your digital identity would then be graded, starting with your personal carbon allowance, a certain amount of carbon you're allowed to use, after which you have to buy more. So Leonardo DiCaprio can park his yacht in the Caymans, but you 
have to ride the bicycle to work. So the peasants get their couple hundred allowance, the bribe to get this voted into law, and the rich get to impose their own nothing and be happy utopia while keeping those private jets, 5,000 square foot mansions, and pristine vacation spots cleared of the riffraff. Here's Eva Vlardingerbrook, pronouncing Dutch names my Waterloo, on the proposal. The digital identity mm-hmm. is not just a passport that you will have on, an, on your iPhone mm-hmm. in a digital form. It entails just about everything the government would like to know about you. Mm-hmm. And yesterday in the Dutch media, we saw a perfect example of what it could entail in the near future. Mm-hmm. We had the CEO of one of the largest Dutch banks say, why don't we start with a personal carbon credit? The rich will get richer, the poor will get poorer, and they're saying it openly as if it's not a controversial Mm. thing at all. Mm. It's neo-feudalism. The fact this is even getting a hearing highlights how the modern left has sold its soul to the oligarchy. There was a time the left stood up for the regular guy and against the elite. In Dooley's famous quote, comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Sadly, those days are long gone. The left has become institutionalized, converting to what Rothbard called the intellectual bodyguard of the regime. They still have the propaganda of fighting for the common man, but it's become the cheese in the trap, luring the victims in and then locking them into a system where they are strip-mined at the pleasure and profit of the elite. We have only to look at the cities and states where these supposed champions of the downtrodden have taken power. New York and California throws them on the street to make way for virtue signaling. Baltimore leaves their children illiterate. Detroit or Chicago murders them. If you really want the poor to suffer, elect a politician who says he fights for the poor. So what's next? What's next is, in theory, a gradual realization by the poor that they are being taken for a ride. A clear-eyed assessment of exactly how government destroys their communities, despite taxing eye-watering sums to do it to them. And understanding that they themselves hold their destiny in their hands, if only they demand it. Demand control over their schools, over their public safety, over the small businesses that used to sustain poor communities across America. Unfortunately... The institutional left is not going to tell them. The mainstream media, Hollywood, the educational system itself, all conspire to hide what's happening to them, to direct their deserved anger at the partisan uniparty mock battles instead of their own governments, who they elected, and are now trying to crush them. As always, it will change when the water boils and the frog jumps, but given the institutional left's elite capture, that would take a lot longer and the water will get a lot hotter than it should. If you've been on the internet lately, you've probably come across the concept of the fourth turning. This is a crisis, an era of destruction, that can involve war, revolution, or social collapse. It comes from a 1997 book by William Strauss and Neil Howe, who think we are in one right now. Strauss and Howe build a model of history, their generational theory, running on cycles lasting around 80 years. Each cycle is made of four stages, or turnings, which last around 20 years each. These are renewal, stabilization, decline, and crisis. They believe the current cycle started in 1946, the end of World War II, meaning as of 2006, we are overdue 
for a civilization-threatening crisis. The concept that civilization runs in cycles is actually very old. In 146 BC, Polybius laid out the rough contours in what he called the political cycle, or kiklos. Now, you already know Polybius' cycle. It's famous as the hard times create strong men meme. And for Polybius too, the cycle had four stages, beginning in renewal, then prosperity, then decline, and then crisis. The inflection point for Polybius is that the prosperity contains the seeds of its own destruction, as a new generation forgets the hard times and becomes complacent. They fail to defend key institutions, which then deteriorate. Social trust declines, public order declines, and the hard times come once again. The wrinkle is that for Polybius, the cycles are not predictable 20 years, They can last a few years, they can last a century. In fact, history agrees. Hard times in 1940s Japan were a few years long. In Ming China, it was centuries. Somalia has been in a warlord holding pattern for most of my life. More important for us, the good times can also be very short or very long. The British Empire held up for centuries, actually it improved going into the Victorian era. Even in America's brief 250 years, we pulled back many times. So Andrew Jackson's gelding of the central bank and the predatory civil service, he essentially fired enough of them that the rest of them got scared and stopped predating upon the people. The post-Civil War golden age, even Reagan's morning in America is a reaction to the dystopian 1970s. So what's next? Concretely, there are two ways to prepare. Resilience and prevention. Resilience means fortifying yourself in case hard times do come. Insulating your assets, building your skills, your earning potential, and your practical abilities. Building your social network that you can count on thick and thin. Even a flock of chickens, if that's your thing. Once that is covered, the rest is prevention. Political and social organization to renew failing institutions so they can stand on their own feet, the courts, the schools, military, social institutions, secular and religious, can all slow or even reverse the decline, or if left untended, they can accelerate the decline instead. Think of it like maintaining a dike against a raging sea. Yes, it is endless work, but the consequences are catastrophic. In some, the cycle is real, we're in a dangerous spot, but it is under our control. If it weren't under our control, we would just sit back and pray we survive. Instead, we have the power, even the responsibility, to do everything we can to slow and then reverse the fall. The country of Nigeria appears to be giving up on its CBDC after endless protests that included burning down banks. This matters because Nigeria was the second CBDC in the world after China. Now, imagine if Chinese did not live in a totalitarian police state, they would have given up on theirs. Nigeria, thankfully, does not yet have a China-level police state. I mentioned Nigeria's CBDC disaster in a video a few months ago, but here's a recap from John Fijor at Mises. Essentially, Nigeria introduced a CBDC in late 2022 after a national referendum in which 99% of the citizens voted against it. Keep in mind, Nigeria is, in theory, a democracy. Of course, nobody was using it, so the government forced them to, demonetizing physical cash, effectively canceling it, to force people to instead buy CBDCs from the Central Bank of Nigeria, which was being advised by the IMF and, reportedly, the infamous World Economic Forum of Eat Z-Bugs 
fame. This all sent the middle and upper class into complete chaos as the central bank canceled cash before the CBDC was fully operational. But it was catastrophic for the poor who make up most of Nigeria's population. Most don't even have a bank account to buy a CBDC. Understandably, they rioted. They burned down bank branches, demanding the return of physical cash. The government stalled, aiming to time the cash to the eve of the election to buy votes, but that came and went. And now, seven months after the riots and three and a half months after the election, the supply of new cash still is not even 10% what it was. And so, finally, the Nigerian government is giving up. They even arrested the former governor of the central bank, who remains in custody. The IMF, WEF, and their collaborators at the Federal Reserve and White House are laying low. Fortunately, the Nigerian people don't believe a word their leaders say. They didn't trust the central bank, they didn't trust the government, so they resorted to barter and credit to work around the CBDC starvation plan. Matchsticks, yams, soap were all used as commodity monies. Teachers were paid in food by students' families. Traditional leaders and extended families organized relief and assistance. Now, it's worth noting that this kind of social capital is a lot richer in Africa than it would be today in Europe or America, at least in the cities. So as rich as we think we are, in a crisis, our cities at least are probably a lot closer to the edge than we think. So what's next? What's next is the bad guys will not give up. The people hate CBDCs across the world, but those in power love them because surveillance and control are their mother's milk, their drug of choice. So they will keep pushing. But the good news is that, as in Nigeria, there is a point where even vote-buying regimes have to face reality. When the frog jumps, governments will do what they're told. Bottom line, it's not inevitable. None of it is inevitable. It's on us to hold the line. Thanks for listening. Remember to subscribe to get next week's episode right in your inbox and visit petersanange.com for all the videos, archives, and fresh articles about economics and freedom. Okay, we'll be watching. See you next time.